If you have your Bible, would you turn to Luke chapter 14? We begin reading at verse 25 and read through verse 33. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the cross as we have just sung these songs. Lord, you were willing to lay down your life for us. You were willing to sacrifice yourself for us. And you call us, Lord Jesus, to carry our cross and, and follow you. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us what that means today. And may we respond with, yes, Lord, I believe in you. And Lord, by your grace, I want to follow you. All the days of my life, regardless of the cost, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone has said that successful merchandising is to give consumers what they want. And this is why companies spend much time and much money discovering what it is that people are willing to buy. And if they don't, uh, some companies aren't going to make it. <laughs> they will not survive. John MacArthur, in his book, Hard to Believe, describes how this consumer focus has invaded the church. He says it's, it's Christianity for consumers. He calls it Christianity light. The redirection, watering down, and misinterpretation of the biblical gospel in an attempt to make it more palatable and more popular. It tastes great going down and settles light. It seems to stab your feelings and, and scratch your itch, he says. It's custom tailored to your preferences. But that lightness will never fill you up with the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ because it is designed by man and not God. And it is hollow and worthless. 
then he says, in fact, it's worse than worthless because people who hear the message of Christianity light think they're hearing the gospel. They think they're being rescued from eternal judgment when, in fact, they're being tragically misled. Then he says this, the true gospel is a call to self-denial. It's not a call to self-fulfillment. Get that. The true gospel is a call to self-denial. It is not a call to self-fulfillment. Luke tells us in the first verse of our text that there were large crowds that were following Jesus this day. And I suppose this would have been the modern evangelical's dream. Huh? An obvious evidence of success, because after all, it's numbers that really matter, right? Large crowds, that's what we want. But if you look at what Jesus said to these large crowds, you get the impression that he wasn't impressed with large crowds. In fact, instead of seeking to enlarge the crowd, what Jesus really did here was thin the crowd, didn't he? <laughs> because there were some who were following him for various reasons. Some were the sign seekers. How many times did they say, Lord, show us a sign from heaven and, and we'll believe? Another group was what we could call the self-seekers. They wanted to know what Jesus could do for them. How could Jesus help them? How could He make their life easier? How could He make their life better? What could He do for them? But that's not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If anyone is going to follow Jesus, He makes it very clear here that there will be a cost. And I would suggest to you that God's Word is very clear that there is no such thing as Christianity light. Huh? A little different version for those who really don't want to count the cost. Those who want fire insurance, you know, they want to be spared from judgment, but they really don't want to live for Jesus. That is not what it means to be a true follower of Christ. Notice, first of all, there is a relational cost in following Jesus. Verse 25 speaks of the large crowds that were going with him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when you read that... What is your first impression? Isn't it like, whoa, what is Jesus saying here? I'm not sure I really understand this. It seems to go contrary to other statements in Scripture. Children are commanded to honor your father and your mother. Husbands are told to love their wives. And then Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you need to hate them. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. So we need to ask the question, what, what does Jesus mean here? What is he saying in this 
passage. One of the principles of interpreting Scripture is that we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture, right? That is a basic way in which we understand the Word of God. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. And when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see in several places that the word hate means to love less than. To love less than. Let me give you one example from the book of Genesis. In chapter 29, with the relationship of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Genesis 29, verse 30 says, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. The very next verse says, says, says then, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, Literally, the word is hated. And he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So in those two verses, we see what does he mean by hated? It means that he loved Rachel more than Leah. Jesus makes this very clear in a very similar passage. Matthew 10, verse 37. Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So as we compare Scripture with Scripture, that gives us the understanding of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that our love for Him must be so great, so pervasive, that our natural love of family pales in comparison. We are to subordinate everything to our love and commitment to Christ. He must be our first loyalty. And every other relationship is second to Him. That's what Jesus means. He's first. He is the preeminent one. We love Him with our heart and soul and mind and strength. More than anyone, more than anything else. That's what Jesus is saying here. Daryl Bach says, At the time, a Jewish person who made the choice to follow Jesus would alienate his or her family. If someone desired acceptance by family more than a relationship with God... One might never come to Jesus given the rejection that would inevitably follow. In other words, there could be no casual devotion to Jesus in the first century. A decision for Christ marked a person and automatically came with a cost. And we don't really grasp that, I don't think, too well in our Scandinavian Lutheran culture. But in that culture, and in many other cultures today, if you come to Jesus, that means saying goodbye to your family. They won't want to have anything to do with you. And so in that culture, that's the message that Jesus was giving, that there would be a cost. He comes first. And it may mean that your family will reject you. And for many people, that was indeed the case. My father was preaching many years ago in Cleveland, Ohio. 
And there was a lady that, that week that came to really real faith in Jesus, and she went home and told her husband about it. And his response was to say this, it's either Jesus or me. You decide. How would you like to be faced with that? It's either Jesus or me. And she said to her husband, I love you, and I want to remain in this marriage relationship, but if I am forced to make a choice between you and Jesus, it's Jesus. Can you imagine that? What a choice. Most of us will probably, thank God, never have to face something as difficult as that. But there are other situations where we may come across where we may have to make a choice. Is it put Jesus first? Or is it put family first? It's to put Jesus first. So there is a relational cost. Jesus must be first. Jesus went on to say that there is a personal cost in following him. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, there's probably much misunderstanding today what it means to carry a cross. Ever hear people say, well, this is my cross to carry? Ever heard people say that? Have you heard some stupid things that people have said is their cross to carry? Uh, one man said, uh, my, my cross is, is my noisy neighbor. Wow, that's tough, huh? Or one man said, my cross to bear is my mother-in-law. That's a bad one to say, isn't it? But this isn't at all what Jesus has in mind here. Carrying your cross is not putting up with a little annoyance. What is the cross? The cross is an instrument of death, isn't it? The cross is not something that you hang around your neck as a good luck symbol. The cross is the instrument of death. So carrying your cross is a picture of dying. It's death. And that could mean that some may have to literally die for for the sake of Christ. Physically die. And in the day in which this was written, as Jesus spoke to this crowd, there were many that died for their faith. The apostles, just about every one of them was martyred. Throughout church history, it's gone on and it's going on today. It's going on today in our world. Where many Christians are dying for their faith. Willing to trust in Jesus, even if it means losing their life. So it could mean that. And I, when I was young, I thought that would never happen in our country. I'm not so sure now. You just never know. Uh, we are in a, a rapid 
slide morally in our country. To be a Christian, to take a stand for righteousness is becoming less and less tolerated. I don't know. Could it mean that for some? Maybe so. But it also means that we must be willing to die to our own will in order that we might live for God's will. Warren Wiersbe says it means daily identification with Christ in shame, suffering, and surrender to God's will. It means death to self, to our own plans and ambitions, and a willingness to serve Him as He directs. To one degree or another, this is a struggle for us. Because we all have a sinful nature that wants to have its own way, don't we? Do you agree with that? And we want God to rubber stamp our plans. We're not dumb enough to think that we just go on our own. So we say, here's Lord, here's what I want to do, okay? <laughs> Are you good with this? Hope so, you know, stamp it. I want you to you know, bless me with, in my plans and, with, and what I want to do with my, my life. But being a disciple of Jesus doesn't work that way. And this is why many who hear the call to discipleship turn away. They aren't willing to die to their own will in order to live for God's will. But that's what it means to follow Jesus. There's a personal cost of coming to that place where we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Not what I want to do with my life, Lord, but what do you want to do with my life? After all, you're the one that gave your life for me on the cross. Lord, you saved me. You rescued me from judgment. Lord, what do you want to do with my life? So there's a relational cost and there's a a personal cost. And then thirdly, Jesus says here, there is a calculated cost in following Him. You see, in all of His earthly ministry, Jesus never gave people the impression that being a disciple was an easy thing. He didn't try to get them to follow Him, and then after they're following Him, He really tells them what it's going to be like, you know? Kind of changing the price tag, or whatever we would call that. He was right up front with them. And when this crowd was following Him, for whatever reasons they were following Him, Jesus wanted them to understand what it really means to be a disciple. He was not going to make it look like it was something that's easy. And so He gives them a couple of illustrations. The first one is a builder wants to build a tower. Verse 28, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. You ever gone by a house that was started and never finished? Ever seen that? What goes through your mind when you see that? It's ridicule, isn't it? You started and you didn't finish. Why didn't you finish? Okay, And that's the point that Jesus... If a man wants to build a tower, 
starts it and doesn't finish, people are going to, to ridicule. So building a tower is obviously not a small task, is it? Building a tower. Being a disciple of Jesus is not a small thing either. This is one of the lessons that Jesus teaches with this illustration. Richard Lenski says, Discipleship is no small thing. Jesus magnifies it when He describes it as an undertaking to build no less than a grand tower. Not merely an ordinary house or a shed. Now, if Jesus likened discipleship to building a little shed, I suppose many of us would say, well, I can do that. I can build a shed. Who can't build a shed? I have the resources for that. I don't even have to think about that. It's just a shed. But he didn't liken discipleship to building a shed. Following him is like building a grand tower. So is Jesus trying to say then that He doesn't want us to build a tower? Is He discouraging us from becoming His disciple? Lenski again says, that's the usual interpretation, but it is not even by implication contained in Jesus' words. Jesus wants us to become disciples. The man ought to build the grand tower. But no man can do this by his own natural ability. To attempt thus is utter folly. He could never get beyond the foundation, mere outward profession of faith, mere outward attachment to Jesus. Where then is the money to come from to build this tower? Lenski says, grace furnishes all that discipleship needs. Grace alone. So by presenting the cost, what is Jesus doing here? He is helping us to realize that we do not have in ourselves what is needed. We don't. We are dependent on Him. We are absolutely dependent on Him. We're not going to build a tower in our own strength. And Jesus wants us to see that. We don't have the resources. We don't have what is needed. And then the second illustration he gives is of a king who is faced with a battle. He says in verse 31, Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. I find it interesting that Jesus uses the illustration of a battle. Is that a fitting illustration in talking about discipleship? Is it not a very fitting illustration? We are in a battle, aren't we? Let's not kid ourselves. We are in a battle. We battle the devil, we battle the world. We battle our own sinful flesh. We are in a battle. Ephesians 6, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So discipleship is warfare. And I don't know what you think about warfare, but I would suggest to you that warfare is not easy. So was Jesus trying to tell us then not to enter the battle? Is He trying to say that there's no way to win and it's much better just to settle for peace? Is that what He's saying? I don't think so. In verse 33, Jesus goes on to say, So then, here's my conclusion, So then, none of you can be My disciple who does not give up all His possessions. Lenski says, Jesus now tells His hearers to renounce everything, literally everything they have in and of themselves. Because it will all, however much of it there may be, never get beyond the foundation of a tower, beyond 10,000 against 20,000 troops. They must get what will take them through, clean through from start to finish in the case of the tower, clean through from the first clash to a complete victory in the war. And here's the point he makes. When they come to Jesus, absolutely empty of anything in and of themselves, then they can truly be His disciples. Then, they can, then He can fill them with His possessions. And with them, the tower can and will be built. The battle can and will be won. So as you listen to what Jesus says here, and you say to yourself, I don't have what it takes to be a disciple, you know what? You are absolutely right. (laughs) You don't. And neither do I. But that's the point that Jesus wants us to come to. That point of acknowledging that we don't have it. I can't pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can't will to be the kind of disciple that I ought to be in my own human power and strength because it isn't enough. It's only Jesus who is able to take us each day as empty vessels, jars of clay, earthen vessels, and fill us with the power that we need, that we desperately need to be His disciple. The Apostle Paul explains it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, 4, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul says, And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in what? Weakness. Are you weak? Are you weak? We are. And so if we think that we're going to live the Christian life because we got what it takes, huh? we miss the whole point. 
Jesus gives these illustrations to show us that we don't have what it takes. But He does. Paul asks the question in Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? And you know what the answer to that question is? None of us. But he goes on to say that our sufficiency comes from God. So daily, Jesus says, we take up our cross and follow Him. Daily we say, Lord, I'm just an empty vessel. I'm weak. I'm sinful. In my flesh, I want my own way. But Lord, fill me with Your power. Fill me with Your grace. Fill me with Your strength. Because that's the only way. The only way that I will ever take up my cross and follow Him. Jesus gave His life for us. We say, Lord, I give all I have to You. Empty, weak, sinful. But God, take me, fill me, and use me for Your glory and Your praise. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at what it means to be a disciple, to take up our cross and follow You, to put You first in every area of our lives, we are prone to say, Lord, I don't think I could ever do that. And we're right. But as You fill us, Lord, as You give us what we need for each day, Lord, we can be Your disciple Not a perfect disciple because we stumble and fall. But Lord, You are worthy of all that we would give You this day. And so Lord, I pray that we would surrender our lives to You, our possessions to You, all that we have to You. And that You would call us, Lord, to to follow You and that we would be willing to say, Lord, where You lead me, Lord, I will follow. Thank You for Your power. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your strength. Lord, fill us today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.